Our reading this morning comes from the 18th chapter of John, verses 28 through 40. Listen now to God's word. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, He went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Thus ends the reading. In certain circles, they warn preachers that when your pop culture references start becoming dated, you lose your ability to connect with the younger generation. I disagree vehemently. I think that my multiple weekly references to the Dick Van Dyke show are as fresh today as they would have been in 1966. And I, for one, believe that all married couples should still be sleeping separately in single beds separated by a nightstand. And I told Mikey and Elizabeth as much at their wedding yesterday. But to get a little more au courant and on topic for our passage today, I will refer to one of the quintessential songs of the 1990s, the decade of my rapidly receding youth. And the song is ironic off Alanis Morissette's massive 1995 album, Jagged Little Pill. And the song presents several situations which she labels as, quote, ironic. These include an old man turning 98, winning the lottery, and dying the very next day. A black fly in your Chardonnay, a death row pardon that comes two minutes too late. Rain on your wedding day. The free ride when you've already paid. It's the good advice that you just didn't take. And who would have thought it figures? Since its release, almost 20, uh, 
23 years ago. The song has sparked fierce debate over whether anything in it actually fits any commonly accepted definition of irony. And this is from the truly wonderful Wikipedia page about the song. Quote, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, irony is a figure of speech in which the intended meaning is the opposite of that expressed by the words used. Thus, lyrics such as, it's like rain on your wedding day and a traffic jam when you're already late, are not ironic. And I absolutely love this quote from the the Wikipedia article from the comedian Ed Buren. The only ironic thing about that song is it's called ironic and it's written by someone who doesn't know what irony is. That's quite ironic. And while it's debatable the degree to which the song Ironic contains any actual irony, there is no debating that our passage this morning is filled with irony in in almost every sense of the word. The Gospel of John might be called the Gospel of Irony, but especially in this passage, Jesus' trial before Pilate, this might be the most ironic passage of all. Now, if you're like me, and here I've been making fun of Alanis Morissette, and she doesn't know what irony is, but what actually counts as irony can, can be a confusing thing. So just a very brief definition of what I mean when I'm talking about irony, particularly as it relates to this passage. Really what I'm talking about is dramatic irony, and, and I found this definition online, which is helpful. It's a literary technique originally used in Greek tragedy by which the full significance of a character's words or actions are clear to the audience or reader, although unknown to the character. Basically, the characters inside the story see things one way, but we, the audience, on the outside of the story, see them exactly the opposite way. The insider's vision is limited, but we, the outsiders, can see the whole picture. In this passage, we have the irony of the religious leaders, the irony of Pilate, and last, the irony of Barabbas. So first, let's look at all the irony around the situation of the religious leaders. At this point, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas Iscariot and arrested, and and the crime of which Jesus is guilty in the religious leaders' eyes is blasphemy. Back in chapter 10, Jesus said, I and, the fa- I and the Father are one. At which point some religious leaders picked up stones to kill Jesus. And Jesus said to them, for which of my good works are you going to stone me? And they replied, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Isn't it ironic They believe that Jesus is blaspheming by stating that he and the Father are one. But we on the outside see that this isn't blasphemy, but the truth. And the Jewish leaders went to Pilate's headquarters in Jerusalem, the Praetorium. Because even though Jesus was guilty in their eyes of a capital offense, they lacked the authority to carry out a death sentence. Palestine was under Roman jurisdiction, and while they delegated a lot of authority and responsibility to the locals, the Romans reserved for themselves the right of capital punishment. And the Romans could care less about whether someone had broken the Jewish law as it pertained to to blasphemy. And so they needed to come up with another charge that would stick, that would speak to Pilate's concerns and Rome's concerns, which were not their concerns. 
Well, there's more irony. John tells us that Pilate, he comes outside, and, and throughout this passage, Pilate is going outside to the religious leaders and inside to Jesus and outside and inside. And the irony is that the reason Pilate came out to meet them was because they didn't want to defile themselves. The religious leaders didn't want to defile themselves by entering inside of the the praetorium, inside of his headquarters, because that would have made them ritually impure and they would have been unable to eat the Passover supper that night. According to their interpretation of the law, it was okay for Jews to enter into a Gentile home insofar as they only went in the courtyard meaning they had a, 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 the sky was open above their heads. And if you went across the threshold and went so that there was a ceiling or a roof over your head, well, well then you were rendered ritually unclean until sundown. And so here they are handing Jesus over to be killed by the Romans, a grave and total injustice. And they're worried about maintaining their ritual purity. The irony, they are worried about defiling themselves in virtue of where they're standing rather than what they're doing. They're worried about the little sins while missing the great, big, terrible sin they're committing. Talk about missing the point. But let's not be too hard on the religious leaders. We're good at missing the point, too. It's a famous example of, of Tony Campolo, who um, is a Christian sociologist, a popular speaker, especially in, in the 90s and early 2000s, and kind of a... a social justice-oriented evangelicalism. He's kind of known now with the red-letter Christians. So, so, so Campolo was very popular in, in, in this era, the, 2000, the 2000s, early 2000s and 1990s. And he had this thing he'd do. I mean, you could call it a shtick, but he, he would go and speak to, you know, a Christian audience, like at a Christian college. So, you know, these fine, upstanding young Christian men and, and, and women, you know, conservative typically, and he'd say, I have three things I'd like to say today. First, while you were sleeping last night, 30,000 kids died of starvation or diseases related to malnutrition. Second, most of you don't give a bleep. And what's worse, the third thing is you're more upset with the fact that I said bleep than the fact that 30,000 kids died last night. And his point was clear. You're missing the point, if you're worried more about the language I'm using than this great tragedy that's unfolding each and every day in the world. And as Christians, we can be really good at missing the point, at, at losing focus on our mission to be salt of the earth and light of the world. You know, you can spend endless hours debating things like whether there should be pew cushions or not. And then you can decide, well, we'll put pew cushions in half the sanctuary and not in the other half of the sanctuary. Uh, you'll notice there's no more pew cushions there anymore. A small act of rebellion with major consequences. Right, we can become so worried about small things and small comforts that we are just totally blind or completely risk-averse when it comes to the big things that matter. And don't get me wrong, I, I do think that little things matter. But they only matter insofar as they serve the big things, the bigger mission and vision that God has placed before us. And so we get in trouble when we maximize what is minimal and we minimize what is maximal. When we make mountains out of molehills and molehills out of mountains. 
And so let us always be on guard against this very natural human tendency, lest we too become like these religious leaders who scrupulously maintain their ritual purity. Well, in fact, Jesus' blood was on their hands. So that's the irony of the religious authorities, that they wanted to charge the Son of God with blasphemy, and they wanted to maintain their ritual purity so they could eat the Passover by handing over the Lamb of God to be killed. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? And that brings us to Pilate. And this whole scene is dripping with irony because, well, Pilate thinks he is the judge and Jesus is the one who is on trial. We, of course, on the outside see that the exact reverse is true. It's actually Pilate who's on trial. He's the judge being judged. And he represents the authority and power of Rome, which considered itself the greatest power in the world. But standing before him is Jesus, who represents a far greater kingdom and authority than Pilate could ever imagine. And because blasphemy wasn't a capital crime according to Roman law, we we can tell by implication from this passage the, the charges that the Jewish leaders were trying to bring against Jesus. That he was an insurrectionist. That he was attempting to foment a, a political and military revolution against Rome. So that's why Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? This was a political title with real-world implications because if you went into Jerusalem in the year 33 AD and started telling everyone, I'm the king of the Jews, it would have been a direct challenge to the rule and authority of Rome. And given our distance from the world of this passage, I think it's important for our understanding of it to know that Pilate's in Jerusalem, that's normally not where he spends his time. And in fact, for him, that's one of the bad parts of the job, that he has to go to Jerusalem a couple of times a year to sort of keep the peace. If you were Pilate, you wanted to spend your time in, in he had a nice Roman city on the coast, Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea on the sea. And, and if you go to Israel today, it's this, you see the ruins of it. It's, it's just north of Tel Aviv, and it's this beautiful city right on the Mediterranean Ocean. And the ruins are still there of, of, of the amphitheater and of the hippodrome, and, and there's the baths. I mean, this was a great place. If you were a Roman person, that's where you wanted to be. And so a couple of times a year, you know, heavy as the head that wears the crown, he has to go to Jerusalem in order to keep the peace, especially during Passover. To make sure that these throngs of pilgrims who are arriving, celebrating this festival that's commemorating God, you know, granting liberation to his people and and really constituting them for the first time as a people, that they don't get carried away and take this celebration a little too literally and start thinking that God might be doing the same thing again. Except this time, Caesar plays the role of Pharaoh and Rome plays the role of Egypt. So peace, order, security, that's what Pilate was in Jerusalem to ensure. And he knew the best way to do that was at the point of a sword. Or as we would say, at the barrel of a gun. And so the irony is that while Jesus is, is, is a king, he, he's the king of a type of kingdom that Pilate could never understand. Because it doesn't operate according to the rules that earthly kingdoms do. That's why Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And, and there's so much about what Jesus says here that, that we could unpack. And so I want to tread carefully. But what, what Jesus is not saying is, my kingdom has absolutely nothing to do with this world. 
So all the church needs to do is go out and preach a, a message of post-mortem salvation. You know, after you die, you get to go to heaven. And so any kind of sin or injustice or evil that's going on in the world here and now we can ignore. That's not the kind of Christianity that Jesus has in mind. Christians who are so heavenly-minded that they can do no earthly good. What Jesus means in saying that his kingdom is not of this world is that it doesn't originate here. And it doesn't operate according to the rules and principles and structures that earthly kingdoms do. How do earthly kingdoms operate? Through the monopolization of coercive force. The person or entity that is in charge has the power to make you do stuff, whether you want to or not, upon pain of life, limb, or property. Why pay your taxes? Because if you don't, the IRS can go into your bank account and take your money. Why can't the church, why can't, you know, we want to raise some money, put it, we want to put in the Elevate Task Force, put in a lift, that's a lot of money, or an elevator, how do we get money for that? Well, let's put a beer garden on the flat roof of the church and start charging people money. That's a great way to raise money. Why can't we do that? Because if we did, the city would come in and tell us to stop, and they'd use the police and courts if they had to. That's how the kingdoms of this world that originate in this world work. They, they monopolize coercive power, and, and then they get the buy-in. When they're most effective, they have the buy-in from those subjected to that force to think that this arrangement is legitimate. This is how it should be. The city can tell us what we can build. We can't go down to City Hall and start telling them what they need to do. So the kingdoms of this world, they, they monopolize coercive force. But that's not how Jesus' kingdom operates. Instead of coercion, it's persuasion. Instead of the power of force, it operates according to this power of love. And greater love has no one than this, than you lay down your life. And on the nature of the, the difference between the, the, the kingdom of God and how God works to persuade and not coerce, I, I love this passage that... that is not directly speaking to this, but it's a similar idea. It comes from the screw tape letters. And so this is screw tape, the, the, the tempter writing to Wormwood, the junior tempter. And he's saying, But you now see that the irresistible and indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his God's scheme forbids him to use. To merely override a human will, as God's felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for him useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. The kingdoms of this world ravish. They coerce. They force. Jesus' kingdom woos, persuades, courts. Jesus is talking about a kingdom Pilate can't understand. And Pilate wants a straightforward answer because if Jesus considers himself to be the kind of king that Pilate understands, the case will be simple enough. He can deal with them accordingly. Rebels and would-be kings, they get put on crosses. It's a very simple formula for him. But Jesus won't answer Pilate according to the false premises of his question. His kingdom is qualitatively different from Rome. And that's the truth that Jesus says he came into the world to bear witness to, that there's another way of being in this world, and there's another way of relating to one another. And the church, at least in, in miniature 
represents an alternative polis, an alternative way of ordering our life together towards human flourishing and the common good, toward love of God and love of neighbor. And Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. People obey Jesus because who he is and what he says is truth. And truth has a persuasive power that has nothing to do with coercion. The truth is persuasive, but the power that Pilate understands is coercive. It's right makes might versus might makes right. So Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Then we get the most famous retort, I think, in all of the Gospels. Truth. What is truth? And I don't think this is a genuine question because Pilate doesn't stick around to hear the answer. And the irony, of course, is that here is is Pilate cynically asking what is truth. And standing in front of him is the very person who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The truth is standing literally right in front of Pilate. The the light of the world is, is, is shining in his face and he's completely blind to it. But it's still a good question. What is truth? It's one of the great questions of human existence. And truth is, is something that's much under assault these days. In the days of fake news and alternative facts, that the truth, maybe it's always been this way, but it's just more out in the open. It's something that you can create if you repeat a lie enough times. It'll become true. The great irony, of course, of the Soviet Union, the official state newspaper was called Pravda. Truth. The truth is plastic. It can be twisted to fit whatever conclusion you want to reach whatever position or politician you want to support. What is truth? Well, it all depends on what your definition of is is, doesn't it? And on this question of of truth and Jesus, N.T. Wright said, truth isn't something that you get out of a test tube or a mathematical formula. We don't just have the truth in our pockets. Philosophers and judges don't own it. It is a gift. A strange quality that, like Jesus' kingdom, in fact, comes from elsewhere, but is meant to take up residence in this world. Jesus has come to give evidence about this truth. He himself is the truth. So what Jesus shows us, what he teaches, what he embodies is truth. Truth not as a proposition, but a person. And so living in the truth and from the truth comes from a life spent following him who is the truth. So if we want the truth, then we've got to belong to Jesus and walk in his footsteps. And that's a statement that's unsatisfying to both the philosopher and the politician, but it's just true. And I love this quote from Blaise Pascal, who wrote this in his Ponces. He said, Truth is so obscure in these times And falsehood so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. That connection between heart and knowledge is what we see in Jesus. So that's the irony of of Pilate, the Roman judge before the judge of the living and the dead. and, And this petty Roman official before the king of kings, the skeptic standing in the very presence of the truth. But the irony of all ironies comes at the very end with Barabbas. 
So Pilate is trying to find a way out of this situation. He can find no guilt in Jesus. And that's the irony, that the corrupt judge reaches the correct verdict. But Pilate doesn't have the courage of his convictions when it comes to the truth. He's worried about inflaming the passions of the people and and losing control over the mob in this supercharged atmosphere at Passover. He doesn't want to be responsible for the decision, and so he does what all cowards do. He punts. He lets the people decide. I have this tradition. We release someone at Passover. Should I release the king of the Jews? And the people cry out, not this man, but Barabbas. And it says in our passage that Barabbas was a robber. But if you're reading this in the translation I did, there's a little number one footnote right there after the word robber takes you to the bottom of the page, a footnote, and it says, or an insurrectionist. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. And the irony, the one falsely accused of insurrection is condemned to die instead of one who really was a rebel. A guilty man is set free. An innocent man is condemned to die. And the irony of all ironies is that Barabbas' name in Aramaic means the son of the father. And we know that Jesus is the true son of the father. And this is the gospel of irony. Again, N.T. Wright captures this so beautifully. He says, ah, but that's the truth. The truth that belongs with Passover. The truth that says one man dies and others go free. Barabbas, the brigand, perhaps himself a would-be king or supporter of someone else's failed messianic movement, faces the gallows as well. Somehow, through the cynicism, the casual local custom, the misunderstandings, the distortions, the plots and schemes, the betrayals and denials, the truth stands there in person, taking the death that would have otherwise fallen on the brigand. Pilate didn't see it at the time. Even cunning Caiaphas probably didn't appreciate the irony of the point. But John wants us to see it. This is what the cross will mean. This is what the truth is and does. Truth is what Jesus is. And Jesus is dying for Barabbas and for Israel and for the world and for you and for me. Isn't it ironic? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.